and welcome to another episode of Story Conversations. I'm here with my co-host. Hello, I'm Susan Griffin, and you are, of course. Oh, and I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm Simon Arrowsmith. There um, you go. There you go. So our guest today is um, a chap called Jeremy Sturt. So Jeremy works, uh, comes from the world of theatre. He's going to tell you his own story. Um, but he has worked way beyond that. He uses stories not only in the traditional theatrical sense, but as a leadership and development tool and a, a, a source for employee engagement. So working with big blue chip businesses on how to use narrative stories and storytelling. So we'll let Jeremy tell his story. It's, it's a fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Oh, we had so much fun. We did. Too much fun. <laughs> anyway, yeah. here's Jeremy. Um, everybody, welcome to this episode of Story Conversations, and we have—we're so pleased today to have Jeremy Sturt with us. Um, Jeremy, uh, I, I, rather than attempt to introduce you ourselves, um, we'd love you to to literally tell us your story and. Um, and and if you will, I, I mean, I personally would love to understand the origin story of Just Add Water, which is your consultancy. Um, so so anyway, welcome, Jeremy, and please tell us your story. Well, thank you very much, Susan, and I'd be delighted to. I love talking about myself. Um, but the first thing I should say, yeah, it's uh, I am so thrilled you're doing a um, a podcast on uh, storytelling. Uh, it's the, one of the most critical for me, foundations of, of life and also of business and also theatre. Um, and it is an area and, uh, and an arena that I've been working in ever since I, I guess I went to drama school. Um, and that was a very long time ago, Susan. So I, I guess that's probably a good place to start. You must have been a child star. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Not, um, not, 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 please, sir, may I have some more in an in original <laughs> oh, no, I Oliver? I, not in the original Oliver, because that would date me far too much, but I did <laughs> do Oliver when I was a kid, you are right. Um, and what I did realise as a child was that I was very, very poor on the front of the boards. And actually what I did love was <laughs> the business of theatre and the stage management and producing the theatre, and that's where I went. So I went to... Central School of Speech and Drama to study stage management, absolutely adored it, um, and then moved from there quite quickly into uh, rep theatre, regional houses uh, at Leicester, and enjoyed that once more, uh, and then realised that I really wanted to get into my first love, which was uh, musicals, um, and I came back into London with no particular plan, but just to actually get into musicals. I was very fortunate. I was invited to um, uh, join the um, stage management team for a, a show called Chess the Musical way back in 1986. There you go. Far too long ago. Um, and Chess went on, you know, it was an extraordinary show in any way because it was written by the guys from ABBA um, and obviously Mr. Tim Rice. Um, fantastic tunes, fantastic idea, uh, some deep flaws in it as a show. Um, but hugely enjoyable. Um, so I had quite a, a, quite a good career in West End and also got to Broadway with one of the world's biggest flops ever, Carrie the Musical, which uh, 
I don't know if you remember it, Susan. But, I, uh, I, I, I remember it. I've seen productions of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those shows that will always live in, I don't know, what do you call it? In infamy, infamy um, yeah. I guess. Yes, it was. Yes, infamy, infamy. You've all got it, infamy. <laughs> but uh, so <laughs> we, we opened, we did. I mean, I know, I know for a fact Simon saw it. In yep. Stratford. In Stratford. Before it moved to Broadway. I did. Yep. So you were very fortunate to see Barbara Cook play the mother. I oh, wonderful, wonderful Barbara Cook, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually saw the, the revival um, ah. uh, with um, Mary Mara Maisie. Maisie. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Bless her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought, yeah. Well, well, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. Actually, I'm going to divert a little bit here. Um, <laughs> if if we think about the parallels of theater and companies, you know, um, what is it? Something like 95% of sh Broadway shows never recoup, yep. right? And and if you're investing in a Broadway show, it's it's tantamount to, I mean, the in the US, the Security and Exchange Commission oversees investing in theater because it's it's as risky as investing in tech startup companies who have an equally infamous failure rate. Um, exactly. So it, it's the, the, the it, it's interesting that the people who, um, you know, they persist in terms of bringing shows to a commercial audience probably have the same kind of, I don't know whether it's naivete or, or just uh, hubris or whatever, but the leaders <laughs> of companies, you know, I, I'm sure that, I'm sure that you found parallels, but, but I digress. Oh. Um, uh, so. Uh, Susan, I, let me answer that first. A hundred percent, both hubris and naivete. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think uh, in many ways, it's about risk taking, right? Um, and, and that's where it, you know story is so important to right. risk taking. Um, well, telling that it, story to an audience, right? Whether yeah, that absolutely. audience be con con customers or yep. ticket buyers, you know, so many shows have failed that were really quite good, but it they never succeeded in telling their story to ticket buyers. Um, so anyway, uh, I mean, that, that, I think that parallels, I think going to be very interesting in this conversation about your journey yep. from theater to yep. leadership. So, so yeah, um, just to build on that, if I may, I think the, the, uh, founders of, of startups that do succeed and still retain their founder status are those who are great, great storytellers. Not necessarily great leaders, but fantastic storytellers. And we can come back to that. Um, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, I, I was West End. I, was, I then moved with, um, I moved into doing uh, production management for Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Loved, loved that as well, taking music for Andrew Lloyd Webber around the world, moving shows from West End to wherever else around the world, uh, really enjoyable. Loved all of that, then exec producing for them. And then I moved to a company called Imagination to set up a, a new company, uh, Imagination Entertainments. And, Imagine, and that was the interesting move, I guess, for me, which was a wonderfully charismatic genius called uh, Gary Withers, who is brilliant um, in his own way, um, fantastic character, 
uh, taught me so much about business and about um, the theatre of business, if you like, but without really um, doing too much, knowing it at the time. But my job was, was to focus on um, theatre and, and uh, media and creativity. Um, had a great time there, decided to leave um, because um, I felt that actually we could do a lot more and it was a kind of a time of recession as well. So there was, you know, we were in the process of really changing out, I guess, what was happening with um, imagination. And um, at the time, um, one of my fellow directors said, look, why don't you talk to these guys? They need, are in desperate need of producer. They have no idea what they're doing but they've been invited to do a big piece of corporate theatre. Um, so I, I met a gentleman who then became my partner, David Pearl, and David and I basically sold in an idea to um, McKinsey, uh, the management consultants, for them to actually think about undertaking a journey, if you like, of creative immersion in order to explore their creativity and innovation. Um, and so we ended up taking uh, uh, partners and their significant others, husbands, wives, girlfriends, boyfriends, um, to the Algarve in Portugal. Uh, we built an amphitheater with a team of 50 theater folks uh, for 400 people. And then on the first day, we journeyed 400 people into this amphitheater, sat them down, gave them a 30 minute show. And at the end of that said, in three nights time, you are going to be actually on this stage, starring in, directing, singing, choreographing, playing the music in, doing the scenery, doing the lights of your very own show. And, uh, and they did. Um, so <laughs> three, three nights later, uh, we had a performance which they had created with our help, um, and which was based on a Sufi poem, uh, The Conference of the Birds, which is all about the birds of the world flocking together, um, trying to decide upon a leader, arguing, not necessarily being clear about what they wanted to get, going on a journey, returning to uh, the place they started and realizing that the leader they were looking for was always inside of themselves. So that's the first point about narrative that we ought to maybe think about. But, uh, and I was, fasc I was fascinated and I always remember sitting there on the, um, after the first run of this, we did it three times and being invited by a couple of the um, McKinsey partners just saying, look, you two, you, you need to set up a business bringing the creative arts into business. Um, and uh, that, was, that was the start of the journey. We, David and I looked at ourselves and said, well, he said, I still want to sing because he was an opera singer. And I said, well, I still want to produce. And he said, well, let's do this on the side. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> we set up a company called Lively Arts. Um, and basically started to think about how we could actually sell this notion of bringing the creative arts into business uh, as alongside of our particular interests in theatre as well. So we still maintained our work. Um, and as, um, as Simon knows, you know, I, I produced Tap Dogs as a show. I directed shows, I directed boy bands for my sins um, and directed uh, dance shows. Still carried on that work, but over time, this business, Lively Arts, grew into something which was quite pivotal, I think, at the time. You know, this was the mid-90s. Uh, there was a bit of money around from large corporates. They wanted to do things with their teams which were different. 
and there was a lot of um, people who were doing skills exchange. You know, so there's the notion of um, I'm a creative, I've got certain skills, I'll go and teach you as an individual or as a small group about my skills, and hopefully you understand the application into your world. Um, what there were nobody doing, which is where we were saying, tell us about your business, tell us about your strategy, we will create an immersive experience which all of your people go through, which is actually metaphorical or parallel to your business and gets them to understand and feel the notion of what you're trying to achieve. And of course, at the heart of that is narrative and storytelling. And I would separate the two, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's what we did. So we did some extraordinary pieces of work. We did um, a lot of work for the M&A around um, the merger of Guinness and Grand Met to create Diageo, a lot of work with Dell, computers about their move into the Europe. Um, Guinness, when they wanted to actually set up their value system, we took a thousand people and uh, got them to explore what the values meant for them through the sort of the, the world of a sort of theatrical Olympics, which they loved. I mean, so there's some really quite extraordinary events we undertook around the world and great fun. Really great fun. Um, I know you. Go on, sorry, you're going to ask. No, 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 no. Uh, I, 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 I was just trying to understand where Just Add Water came from, but this, this is no. Well, but this, this is uh, <laughs> this is really important because it is the somewhere along the line. Um, you know, you, you've you've managed to do something that most consultants just never figure out how to do. Uh, which is to bring people out of their day to day and and help them to come back completely transformed. Um, yeah, and that, and that's really important. So what we were finding in Lively Arts was that, uh, and it may be a you know maybe a product of the time, the fact that we were both had other interests, which probably took too much attention away from the core of what we were doing. But what we were realizing that we would do these fantastic events, take 700 people, 1,000 people, 2,000 people on this journey. They would absolutely adore it. The scores on the doors, as they say, would be off the charts. And then over time, we'd return to the business. We'd see the CEO in three months, six months time, a year's time. And they would, or senior leaders, and they would talk about the fact that, that everyone still talks about the event. But the absolute shadow of that event has slightly worn off or worn away so that actually the buzz of excitement, the energy that you created had sort of dissipated. And so for, for me, it's like, well, why is that? You know, why, why is it that this work, as much as it lives long in the memory, was not necessarily living long in the soul? Yeah, and not and really changing behavior necessarily. Exactly. Yeah, mindset and behavior was not necessarily moving intellectually yes people were like that was just fantastic emotionally am i still living the lessons that i learned for myself and oh that's where we decided we would go our separate ways very amicably I and mean, david's still a very good friend of mine and we decided that we would set up our own different organizations and just add water came out of that for me which was alongside this sort of notion of bringing creativity in the arts into business that's fundamental. Play and story are fundamental to what we do. But alongside that, what are some of the intellectual rigor frameworks, ideas that are coming from the likes of a Harvard, a London Business School, Singapore, wherever these INSEAD, these great schools are, 
what are, what are those practitioners doing, saying, academics doing as well, that actually we could take and weave into our work? And that's where Just Add Water was born, which is saying, okay, we know that we can do this. We know that we've got the fabric, the base position of play and story. And on top of that, let's look at what's out there and see what we can achieve if we actually weave that intellectual rigor into it. And that's where we met. And yeah, that's where we that's met. Where so, we met. I think, and it, I was just thinking about this the other day. I think it, it was, it was the 2008, wasn't it? It was financial crisis year. It was financial, yeah, yeah definitely. Because <laughs> I was, definitely. I was fortunate enough for, to to just to be working for a, in a financial institution. That was a great <laughs> career move, wasn't it? In two thousand uh, and eight, as HR director, I think you? just before, just before Lehman's, um, we yeah. had a meeting in Canary Wharf, and we were talking about yeah. how you were going, how you could come in and help one of our leadership teams um, through they're just actually, I guess, re reorganizing themselves and, and rethinking about what was their team story. Um, yeah. with, with Just Add Water. And the, the result of that is that I ended up <laughs> working with you guys, <laughs> which is you fantastic. I mean, it, was, it was wonderful. And, you know... I, Kindred spirits. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, we, we, we found out, obviously, that we have a lot more in common, particularly we have a, a, a theatre history, both worked on Miss Saigon for, for a while, although we didn't work at the same time. Um, yeah, and so that it was Jeremy and Claire and the team at Just Add Water that really introduced me to this idea that all that stuff I'd done at university around stories and storytelling actually could have a utility and an application. Um, yep. And before we sort of talk a little bit more about the specific ways in which you guys use stories, I'm interested what you, you said before that narrative and storytelling are two different things. I, we completely agree. We add actually that stories, there's a sort of third story. We have narrative stories yep. and storytelling. And the yep. way we see it is that, that although it, it feels quite different because this isn't perhaps the way a, um, a writer or a, or a traditional storyteller would say that nar narrative is the, you know, the things you show to tell the story. For us, we feel that narrative is really in business is about that kind of overarching meta, if you like, the meta story, that, 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 the message, the core message. How awkward. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> no, I, do we, are we allowed to use the word meta anymore? Is that going to be taken no, off the table no, because no, of Mr. Zuckerberg? That, that's it, you, you're, you're now blown. Facebook, will, actually, I shouldn't say that. Facebook we're not allowed to say that. Right? But yes, we're, not yeah. even allowed, we're not even allowed to say metaphor anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so you've, got, you've got the narrative and then the stories are the structures, the things, the actual sort of... Um, Yep. things themselves and then for us storytelling is the sort of act of sharing a story that the, the, the uh, i call it the little sprinkling on the top i would 100 percent agree no. with you simon and a narrative for me is this, is the the string and the pearls of the stories mm. that hang off the string so you've got your string of pearls that created you know narrative is that red thread that you and i often talk about uh, through it and uh, and i think storytelling is very different in itself as well i, I think you, and, and we know the various forms of storytelling whether it's you know it's the voice, it's the character, yeah. it's, you know, it's the individual, but it's also, you know, it's non-language as well. We need to actually understand there's so many different forms of storytelling. So that. But there, I would agree with the three. Yeah, and if there are any, if, you know, you've already sort of really told, you already answered this question really, which is, you know, what ways does Just Have Water use um, story as a utility? Is there anything we've missed off, anything else that you guys are doing? Uh, yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things that I would I would add. I mean, first of all, I mean for me it was it still is a fascinating journey. With I mean, if I showed you the other side of this camera, I mean, 
I, I mean, you know this bit well, but I love reading. And so my bookshelves are full of sort of both academic theory books, but also story books and, and fictional um, uh, stories as well. I, I just adore reading um, in, in that sense. I think it's really important. The big thing that uh, we play with this around is leadership, obviously. Uh, I think leadership is um, more than ever. We need leadership uh, in this world. And we need really strong, clear, um, human-centric leadership. And, and so stories and storytelling and narrative are critical to that. And I challenge anyone to tell me that there is a good <laughs> democratic leader, if you like, out there who is telling, who's, who's telling us a compelling narrative um, at the minute. They're just, it's just not present. Um, so I, th I do think the, the, the use of story in leadership is, is really clear. And I also think that the use of narrative and story in creating and setting direction for a group of people, whether it's for a brand, an organization, a community, is so critical as well. And once again, you see it in patches, but I think the world has become quite binary in the way, way we look at things, which is unfortunate. And uh, people take polarized views, which is unfortunate. And story and narrative is one of the key um, elements in our armory that we should be using to bring people back together. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting. So, so Simon and I really believe that in this whole idea of if you don't um, agree on your story, and you think everybody else knows your story, humans are going to fill in their their gaps, and they're going to wind yep. up telling a story that you really don't want them. It, it's not your narrative, but they'll fill in the gaps if you can't articulate mm. it. And we often think about that as um, being purely external. In other words, you know, oh, the, the brand has to tell their story to their to their customers but tell us a little bit about your experiences particularly with something like the the hero's journey um in terms of the leader communicating the story in a way that his his uh army if you will can can retell the story the way he intends it he or she intends it so the hero's journey. So for me personally, it's the greatest tool you have in, t in terms of actually building your strategy as a, as a leader, or as an executive team, um, because it is emotional, it is physical, it's intellectual, it's very spiritual as well. Um, so it hits all of those aspects, which are really quite critical to, to brand survival, to organization survival as well. Um, I love the hero's journey. There are plenty of other meta I use that word again, uh, um, meta um, story um, elements out there that we know of. And, and um, I think John York's work in sort of pulling them all together and into the woods is probably one of the best places to go for that stuff. Um, but I do think the hero's, the hero's journey I found fascinating. So we use it as a strategy planning tool a lot. Um, so we we use it with um, clients and with uh, and with exec teams. We also use it as a way of getting people to explore the characters who come into their life. Um, so the archetypes are hugely important for 
leaders or indeed teams to actually understand the different roles that people can play in when they come across them and actually the reasons why it often helps in terms of the emotional intelligence piece you know why do people behave in certain ways and actually describing that behavior through the form of archetypes is hugely beneficial for people to go oh i get it and actually it takes it away from becoming a personal fight it becomes character-led which i think is really important uh, and then the, the other way which i would talk about is the fact that too much um, i've noticed quite extensively in the work we've done too much thinking um, in order to actually shape your f future direction of your business is done in terms of present forward thinking so we try to actually create our future from where we are today now we all know that that really is only going to create incremental innovation mm -hmm. and change actually what you need to do is you need to take your team whoever you're doing your planning with take them out to the future and envisage that future and then work back and build those horizons coming back and the hero's journey is perfect for doing that and they're the, the four questions that Simon knows so well <laughs> which is you know where are you now which is a current state ordinary world where do you want to be um, which is obviously the future state or returning with the elixir um, how are you going to get there the actual journey and there's plenty of milestones and threshold points and characters within that and then really thinking about the, the core of that which is you know the purpose question you know why, why do you do what you do um, and all of them relate to those four broad questions you could cover the whole of the hero's journey with fantastic i mean i don't know if you're still finding this jeremy but one of the things that i find when i'm working with organizations or individuals you know if you're talking about uh, any kind of story is is they they still want to avoid the question of conflict well, either either when they're sharing their story or when they're trying to find the story to to share or when they use it um is is that something that you're still seeing with the organizations 100 percent. yeah i think one of the the biggest conversations we have with teams once they've actually spent the time looking and standing in the future is then saying you've got to build conflict into this conversation you have to build conflict into your narrative because if you don't do that you never you never actually can deal with it when you face it mm. and i'll give you a little story if i may about that uh, we work with a wonderful gentleman called owen eastwood who is a high performance coach for england soccer team and also for Harlequin Simon. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Um, yeah, really, sorry, I had to say that. Um, but uh, yeah, for the rugby. But uh, what Owen, Owen comes, he's New Zealander, and he talks about uh, the sense of belonging and togetherness. He's got a great book out about it. And I was, in, I was chatting with him in front of a, um, about 200 people for a, a, a client, and I was talking about the recent England versus Hungary game, which for so Susan, the soccer game, Quite a big deal. It was in Hungary and the England team were getting an awful lot of racial abuse, mm. an awful lot of it. I mean, they took the knee, they got abuse. Every time they scored a goal, they got more abuse. And I said to Owen, I said, look, in your planning, in your conversations with the team, I said, I was really amazed by how well they took that adversity and dealt with it. And he said, we planned it. Mm. We planned for it. We plan for those moments of conflict because if we don't plan for them, 
then it will take them by surprise and they won't know how to deal with it. And I think it's a really important point here, which is teams, leaders, do not take the time and space to actually plan for po points of conflict, do not even talk about the conflict that is going <laughs> to arise. Wait, we're shaking our heads. <laughs> Simon and I are shaking our heads. And when it does oh, happen, my goodness. they go, well, why did that happen? You go, well, it was going to happen anyway. Because people what, react to what you're doing. I think also what's fascinating is even even if they do rehearse or, or, or plan for these things, they don't do it fully. They don't invest fully. And then they don't do anything with it. If I'm thinking about our current situation for the last 18 months, COVID, massive pandemic. What was it, two years before it hit? The UK government did a massive, the NHS did a really big drill on what happens in a pandemic none of the lessons were applied from the and i wonder why i wonder why they just avoided that oh it was really it was really hard it was really difficult but we're just going to ignore it yeah oh and the us we we had a a a a leader who decided to completely disband the <laughs> pandemic preparedness that's it yeah <laughs> group you know cuz that you know why would we need that why yeah uh, yeah I know it's, it's a classic example, actually, what you talk about there, which is, I mean, there's a wonderful book written by Michael Lewis called Premonition, I think it is, which, where he talked about the COVID crisis mm -hmm. and what happens. And it's the same, to be fair, it's the same in the UK as it is in the US. The reason why actually we were able to deal with it and we dealt with it badly, let's not get away from that. You know, there's thousands of people who died who shouldn't necessarily have died. Mm. Um, the way that it was dealt with was by professionals at the local level rallying around to each other, building out their networks in order to actually make, help make decisions. But in both instances, central government was left wanting. Mm. And that is a great shame of, of coming through that crisis, is you look at the um, countries which actually centrally dealt with the challenge, probably still dealing with it, but they've had significantly less deaths and long-term COVID issues than those countries that had, were wasteful in their approach to it. So to, it comes back to conflict, which is you have to actually take on the idea of conflict. And we really challenge organizations to do that. And to your original question, Simon, do it through story. I mean, mm. story is the best way. Narrative and story are the best way of actually understanding that, saying we are going to face a crisis. Yeah. Um, you know, one of our big clients is in fast food retail, as Simon knows. And, uh, you know, the, they've recently been having supply chain issues um which have been you know lots of reasons why pandemic brexit whatever you want to say um lots of supply chain issues first time it happened it taken totally by surprise second time it happened it was a different form of crisis you know it was um uh it, it was sort of uh, protesters actually coming up against it but they learned the lessons third time they were prepared for it you know and fourth time prepared for it now it's almost become normal that they're going to have to face into that adversity but it was the storytelling that helped them through it it's actually understanding the fact that this narrative is going to continue so how do we deal what's the stories that we are going to actually be looking at to learn the lessons from that we can take forward for ourselves and also for our colleagues in the supply chain and, and i think it's come through story i i i completely agree and I was just funny, again, I was just thinking the other day about um, just just as the pandemic was starting to reach our shores, where were we? We were with that client 
uh, at Heathrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember, I just remember all the all the sort of sanitizers around, going, "Oh, this is a bit silly, isn't it?" <laughs> and then a week later, oh, oh well, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. The the, the idea that um, you have to turn the the facts, the information, the detail into a story that that makes it work. It's it's you know the stuff we know about companies like is it Xerox, isn't it? Xerox and and IBM, they don't have manuals as such they have stories and storytellers who can help you understand how to tackle crisis how to tackle problems because it sticks it's it's retained within memory right and there there might be i don't know jeremy what do you think um is there some safety in being able to um, approach that adversity planning if you can frame it within a, a a story context and then make it real once you've embraced it emotionally? Um, I don't know whether it's safety. It's a, it's a good question, Susan. I, I just think it means that you've thought about it previously. Right, and, right. And uh, I think that's the important point. So I have a very good friend, um, uh, Simon knows his character, but when he was moving house, he actually did it as a hero's journey before it happened. Um, so he planned everything as a hero's journey thinking about and planned in the crisis when the when the movers didn't turn up for 24 hours and he planned in the fact he wouldn't have enough boxes and he planned all of that in and he came and he's remarkable he's hugely you know troubled in many ways very insecure character but he said I moved house and it was easy because he planned it all he actually faced into it and it's not something I would have thought he would have been able to do to be honest but uh yeah, so, so to your question, it's because you've talked about it. It's because it's actually been built out as a story. And, and I think that's the important point. So you never, I think you'll always be surprised when it happens, but you can definitely be better prepared for when it does happen. I think if we looked hard enough, there's probably somewhere, there's probably some neuroscience evidence that shows that, you know, in terms of neuroplasticity and the fact that if you repeat a certain action over a number of times, it becomes part and parcel of who you are and you re- rewire and rewrite that story in your brain. So if you tell it that story of, you know, I've, I've anticipated this, lo and behold, when it does happen, it isn't a surprise. No, yeah. it is the power of habit, to your yeah, point. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I would agree with that. I think there is a way of... You go, okay, so it might be a different situation, but I've been here before. It's, it's, it's happened right. to me before. I know what right. the narrative is. But I see the story. Let me work it through, and uh, I can do that. And, you know, and, and it is true. Going um, Another point you were talking about there, Susan, which is stories unleash um, uh, chemicals in our brain which are radically different to when we look at a PowerPoint screen mm. and just see the bullets. We're just reading it. That's using just a very small part of our brain whereas uh, hearing a story telling a story being part of a story just releases so much more fundamentally it's releasing emotion and those Mm. chemicals you know excite in the brain in a very different way to just reading bullets on a powerpoint screen yeah yeah and you know it's the whole idea of the notion of creativity you're trying to solve a problem you're trying to solve a problem you're trying to solve a problem and then you take a walk or or take a shower and and the, your brain just functions differently. I don't think that's about story yeah. necessarily. But, um, you know, when I think about the probably millions or maybe billions of dollars that have been spent on scenario planning that, that could have been better spent if there had just been um, 
a storytelling mm-hmm. exercise. Um, well, you just you just have to take probably one of our mutually um, favorite musicals. The first line is, "What's your story?" And uh, you know, it's it's something that very few companies actually think about starting with. And you know, what's your, what is your story? What is what is the tale that you're going to tell? that will engage people and make them understand where the value is in your organization or what you're yeah. trying to do. Yeah, who'd have thought that Sondheim would be a great business uh, consultant. Oh, I always but... knew it, always knew it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so you've obviously dealt with big organizations and, and assembling these large groups of people. I'm sure they were coming from um, you know, the the global footprint uh, of, of where the company had offices. So does this concept work differently when a, when a, when a business has um, offices or customers in many regions? You know, does, does a U.S. company form their narrative and tell their story in a way that either helps or hurts them if they have, you know, stakeholders in Asia, for example, I mean, is, is there a universal way stories travel, or is is there? Do you have to build in adjustments when you've got a, yeah. a global enterprise? So I firmly believe stories are universal. However, I do think you need to actually take into you really do need to think about the cultural context. So. Um, we have offices in London, Singapore. Um, we deliberately chose Singapore because we wanted to exploit the Asia market and, and be out there. Um, and at the same time, we work quite extensively in the States. So I think the idea of the, the um, sort of the corporate idea, which was very prevalent 15, 10, 15 years, 20 years ago, of having a one single narrative, one single story is no longer valid. You may have a concept of where you want to go and understanding of it, but then you need to really take into, into mind the cultural context that you're playing into. So if you are a big hospitality organization in China, you have a very different story to tell than if you are that same company in Atlanta, in Georgia. Um, and you have, to, you have to take that on. Um, so the work that we would do with said, you know, a company like that in, in China would be very different. And what I would say is that Chinese are fantastic storytellers. They, they tell brilliant stories. I mean, just look at their history. It's rich with tales and characters and, you know, dragons and mythical um, uh, entities, who, which are fantastic, uh, amazing um, in many ways. And they want to be part of that. They want to perform and be part of this narrative and the, tell their, their personal stories within that. Um, you go to somewhere like, uh, you know, in, in the US, it's a very different cultural context. Um, and you need to work out how you actually embrace that in order to get the story across in the narrative. So I, I think cultural context is critical uh, to, to actually how you actually share your stories. Um, and do you find that this is new news to your clients? Or, I mean, do you, do you have to educate them around that aspect of storytelling? Or did they, did they come to the table with an understanding that it's not just about Google Translate 
Yeah, it's it's a degree of new news, but I wouldn't. I would. I think very quickly that organisations. Is it? Sorry, let me digress slightly. So what you notice is those. Um, you get a, um, a, a level of senior leadership who are who've travelled the world and actually understand that they need to create different stories for different cultures. Um, you then get other leaders who haven't necessarily travelled as much, and they're far more directive in, maybe in their approach. And actually, they they have to be informed that they, you know, you need to actually nuance the narrative and tell different stories within that and, and explore that. So there's a degree of new news. Uh, I think there's an awful lot, because we became global so quickly through the 90s and the noughties, I, I think there is a cadre of um, senior players who actually understand that they actually need to be far more informed about the context and the region that they're going into and actually share stories which are relevant and also different for that um, environment. Um, but saying all of that, you know, sometimes the institutions never learn, do they? So <laughs> you're constantly having to refresh. I mean, you know, take the energy majors at the minute. I mean, I'll, and I'll talk glibly across all of them rather than individually. All of them have realized that they need to reshape themselves, reinvent themselves, reset, whatever the word is beginning with R um, that they're all using. Um, that uh, in order to actually take on the energy transition, as they're calling it. Now, they're not they're trying to tell a new story in an old cloak if, if you like and uh, uh, that's going to be really challenging because people are seen through it um, and uh, generationally people just not trusting into that so what do you do as that entity as as that major i mean you need to really think about what it is the narrative that you are putting across and not just come up with glib statements about 2050 and what you're going to shape the world i think it just goes to show that you can't you can't hide behind a story you think you can you think you know because i think we're, we're, we're sort of taught this particularly through politics that you know you can you can steer the narrative through a good story and you can get people to believe what you want people are more sophisticated now we have we have everything at our, our fingertips that gives us all this information we see through it immediately so the greenwashing you're talking about is immediately you know, wow, why, why, why would they do that? They have to get back to an authentic heart of their story. And that's the struggle, I think, for a lot of these organisations, is they're going to completely have to redefine that narrative at the heart. Um, I'm just conscious of our time. And because, um, no, no, I just, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good conversation. I, I just, um, just <laughs> we, we could go on forever. Um, I, I, I wanted to just ask you, Jeremy, I you know this transition from theatre to to business, I know that you've got some fantastic war stories from your time of theatre. Um, I've heard many of them, many times, and I love them. Um, I wondered if you had what's your sort of personal lessons from the West End and Broadly that you've taken into the consultancy in particular. Is there, is there a particular um, lesson? Oh God, I mean, there are so many. To be absolutely honest, Simon, and and being frank, you pull on them. I pull them on probably even more now that mm. I'm older and yeah. further away from it than I was closer to that time and because you just don't know when you transition and move into something else that um you know what you have brought with you um i think there are number one the biggest the biggest one for me uh, which i think theater does so well is discipline mm. um i think the discipline of theater is 
vastly underrated, um, vastly underrated. And within discipline is still maintaining creativity. Mm. So I think that's extraordinary. And there are very few entities which are really good at that consistently. And, and theatre does that. We all know that in spades. You know, you pull together a team, they put on a show, the show opens, they break up, they now move on to the next thing with a different team. I mean, that's an extraordinary discipline. And something that there's been, you know, companies try to replicate through agile teams, mm. lean principles, scrums, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. You know, it's, it's theatre. Come on. Um, and uh, so that's that element of it. Um, I also think they do it. They, they're doing it all about efficiency. And as they do it about efficiency, they, you know, the more efficient you become, the more creativity you lose. Mm. I mean, so that's something that needs to be considered for large organizations. So discipline and creativity, I think, are huge. Openness um, to change. Openness and be, remaining intensely curious about everything around you, I think, is hugely important. And the best directors, the best writers, the best creators of any form of art, creativity, whatever, are those that are intensely curious about everything, everything, and are open and receptive to it. Mm. Um, and I would say the same for the best leaders I work with. You know, it's, they, ask, they keep asking, they lead through questions. They don't sit there and just say, I know it all. They lead through questions um, and invite people to be part of that. And questioning is a great way to get great stories out. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I think those are probably my biggest lessons if I was to reflect. Discipline, creativity, um, openness and curiosity. I think linked to your comments about openness, the lesson that I always think of from you is this the statement i think i don't know it was probably in the first six months of working together he said simon you've got to get comfortable with working in ambiguity you've just got to be comfortable with ambiguousness and i yeah. wasn't and it was such a struggle but until yeah. you learn until you learn that nothing yeah. is set nothing everything is fluid you can't yeah. really i think progress and do it with a smile on your face and do it with a, just just the, and, smile you know I, I, just absolutely smile. yeah i've seen simon smile an awful lot in the last year but, uh, <laughs> um what it's, I, you talked a lot about the hero's journey but just to, to, for yeah. something fun to to kind of tie this all up do you have a favorite story jeremy <laughs> a favorite story oh my goodness um well, I w the, the Conference of the Birds will always have a very special place in my heart because it's where this, this journey began for me, this chapter in my life. Um, and to that, I will always hold my hat up to, to David for introducing me to, um, you know, Rumi and Sufi poems. But, I mean, that one's a very, very special one. I, I, at the heart of it, my favourite stories at the minute, um, I will go back to it, and Simon will laugh a lot about this, but uh, the story of Shrek, brilliant. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it still is one of the, um, the, finest, um, the finest and simplest of stories, you know, which is all of this. It's a story of love. Very simple. Um, and it's about the, you know, it's about the outsider becoming part of the community and also finding that actually they wanted something more than they actually thought. Um, so that will always be a special one. Uh, the other one, which someone also knows I love, which is this, the Up um, yeah. Pixar film. Uh, and I, I, I will be frank. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge advocate. Um, I work with the guys um, in my time. 
But that first nine minutes mm. is probably one of the best pieces of um, animated cinematography you'll ever see. And heartbreaking. Uh, Completely yeah, heartbreaking. How can, they, how can they do that in the first 10 minutes of a film, break your heart like that? It's amazing. Yeah. I'm so, currently enjoying the, uh, the Disney Plus series of Doug. Doug the dog has oh, his yeah. own series on Disney Plus. <laughs> Have you seen Lightyear's coming out soon? Oh, yeah. Um, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's um, so favorite stories. Uh, there's, honestly, Susan, there's so many, but I think those, those probably sit in my mind the most at the minute. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for, for, for sort of spending time with us, talking to us about how you guys use story and sharing some of your war, war stories with us. Um, there, there are many more. We'll maybe do another episode later on down the series you know, the war stories of jeremy sturt <laughs> well thank you very much for me too jeremy uh, this was terrific and that's a pleasure and listen uh, all the best with the podcast and uh, i'm really looking forward to hearing all about it well there we yes. go yes wow <laughs> so much to unpack here as, as you um, say it's, it's going to be quite I think we should just distill it down into three key things because there's so much in there. It's so rich and such a rich conversation. Um, you mean we have to edit this story? We have to, <laughs> okay. we have to edit right. our own story. So what, what, what was the first thing, do you think, Susan, that you got out of the conversation? Well, it was really funny. It happened early, early, early on in our conversation with Jeremy. And we, we said, tell us your story. And he said, oh, I... I love talking about myself. Mm. I could tell my story all day long. And as the conversation unwound, I, I, it, it dawned on me that this is actually really important. I mean, mm. you have to... He, he talked about um, narrative being the thread and story being the pearls. Yeah. And you have to know those. You have to believe in them. They have to be, you have to t be succinct and consistent with them. Mm. But you have to be in love with them. You have, yeah. to, you have to be so excited. You and everyone in your organization has yes. to be so excited about yeah. the story that they can't wait to tell it. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere, everywhere, morning, noon, and night. So it, it, that was funny. It was very offhanded comment in his part, mm. but it, it really landed for me. I think um, it, it ties into that idea of the story has to, be, has to come from a place of authenticity. It has to be rooted in yes. the truth of, your, of who you are. It can't be an invented story because that, they're generally found out and don't work. So your story has right. to be rooted in the truth and then you have to love it enough because you're going to be telling it a lot. And I guess if you don't love it and you're tired of telling him, maybe you need to get a different story. <laughs> well, yes. And um, <clears throat> he talked about the fact that you need to be in intensely curious. And I think that mm. ties back to the idea of re-looking at your story. But also, I I maybe you can put it better than I can, but the it's the idea of the characters in the story well yeah i guess that's our second point really it's, it's about um do you know the characters in your business so either internally do you understand the players and the characters and and and, and how they impact your business and then externally your customers can you identify them as characters i guess it's kind of like marketing personas but a little bit deeper than simply the just the the, the persona archetype is do you understand your customer 
deeply. If you think about them and their character and their characteristics, their worldview, as Seth Godin talks about, you know, do you really understand that? And are you speaking to that? So when you're talking about your conflict, when you're talking about that overarching narrative and what you can do and what you can deliver for your customer, do you understand what makes them tick? And therefore, when you're speaking to them, are you speaking to them in the right language, as it were? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Because if you're telling a story that just doesn't resonate Mm. with your customer, or if your internal audience hasn't ingested the story so that they can tell it Mm. to that external audience, it's not going to work. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because I I think about some of the organizations, and I won't name names, that I've worked with in the past who will come to me and say, okay, we want to tell the story of the organization to our employees and we want to um, structure it and then tell it to them. And I say, well... You can't really do that because then you will be forcing your story, your story as the management leadership team, onto your people. You need to let the you need to listen first to what's the story that the organization and the culture is telling you and right. then play that story back to the people. And if right. those you know, if the story you want to tell doesn't gel or, or isn't aligned to the story your people are telling you, you've got some work to do before you can get to this wonderful story about this is our this is our employer brand. This is how we are. But so many, so often, people make that mistake of um, trying to force the story onto characters that aren't ready uh, for that right. story. Right, and and those characters play a part in the story. Mm, if your exactly. if your story is 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 a set of values, your employees are manifesting those values. Yeah. You can't force them on a an internal audience. Mm. But you mentioned something else in, in, the, in this second point, and that was the idea of conflict. Mm. Well, you know, it's, it's my favorite subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like uh, a good fight. Yeah, you're the part of this duo that's good at conflict resolution. <laughs> well, it could just smile through anything, you mean? Well, yeah. Maybe I'm just blissfully unaware, I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I think, we, um, as we know, a lot of businesses try to avoid conflict. They're, they're trying to, and, and as Jeremy says, that's a stupid thing to do. You need to embrace right. your conflict. You need to right. understand your conflict and plan for it. So using story structure and, and telling stories and sharing stories to sort of um, forecast what's possible or probable or likely into the future, you know, that good old scenario planning, but doing it through the lens of stories right. to project into the future and saying, where are the conflict points likely to be and how are we going to respond to them? And I think that's so important because what yeah. that demonstrates is that, it, well, not only does it demonstrate you're thinking about what's possible, but on some level, if you've already gone through the story, you've lived it to a certain extent. You've already experienced it. So when the actual thing comes up, you're more likely to be ready for it. Right, right. And and using story to be prepared for adversity or conflict mm. can even give you that lens of, well, yeah, not everybody's going to agree with us, but here's here's how we get to have the debate that ultimately reinforces our conviction and our story. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that that was um, that was really fascinating. Um, well, we we had a great conversation. 
we hope our listeners enjoy the conversation and we've got more on tap coming up um, in two weeks time. See you then. Bye. Thank you.